the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Today on Cornerstone Connection with Pastor Gary Hamrick. Real love is calling, listen, truth opens up your eyes. Mercy is waiting for you with every sunrise. Yes, God's judgment follows the disobedience of people, but... He's made gracious provision that we might not have to experience the judgment of God and the wrath of God if we would turn from our sins and turn to Him. Because God is gracious and merciful. He is slow to anger. He is abounding in love. And He relents from doing harm because God's intention is to forgive us and receive us and restore us in the right relationship with Him. You've probably heard people say, well, nobody's perfect, when they're trying to justify their actions. The problem is that they are comparing their actions to other people, not following what the Bible is telling them to do. In today's message, Pastor Gary will explain that you need to feel sorry and be sorry of your sins. Turn away from your sinful actions and follow God's guidelines that are found in the Bible. That is the only remedy for God's judgment. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of Joel as he continues his message, When God Relents. Well, there's, there's no wheat harvest. There's no barley. There's nothing growing anymore because the locusts have destroyed it. No grain offerings are coming in. No drink offerings to the house of God because for the same reasons, the vineyards have been destroyed. The farmers are grieving as a result also. Their livelihood is, is in the tank because of the locusts. And in chapter 1, verse 18, he says, even the cattle moan and the sheep suffer because there's no pasture to graze. This is how devastating it was. Now, when the Bible speaks about locusts, it's not talking about, don't think cicada, all right? Think grasshopper. The last major swarm of locusts recorded in Israel was 1915. Um, National Geographic ran a story on this 1915 swarm of locusts in Israel. In the account, in the National Geographic account, John Whiting wrote in National Geographic that the locusts were so voracious and numerous that they, quoting now, they could swarm over an unguarded infant and devour its eyes within a few minutes. A swarm of locusts can cover up to 460 square miles, and there can be 80 to 160 million locusts in one square mile. In 2004, 
one swarm in Morocco was measured at 142 miles long and contained an estimated 69 billion locusts. One million locusts gobble as much food as 5,000 people eat in a day. A locust can eat up to its weight each day, so a swarm of locusts can easily eat more than 400 million pounds of plants in a single day. So, when we talk about an invasion of locusts, that's what we're talking about. You know, don't think, oh, that 17-year cicada event, that's a nuisance. Yeah, that's a nuisance. That's all that is. But for them, in this day, an invasion of locusts was devastating. It was devastating on the earth. It was the destruction of all vegetation. It was a disaster economically and agriculturally, and it left the people in great despair. So when Joel comes along here and says the invasion of these locusts is specifically the result of your violation of obeying God's commands, it's Deuteronomy 28 fulfilled. They would have understood this. They would get this. So he speaks about God's judgment in the form of these locusts. It's what happened. It's past tense. Now he switches to future tense in chapter 2. If you look with me in your Bibles at chapter 2, verse 1. He says, Blow the trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming, for it is at hand. Notice the tenses change. Now it's, it is coming. The day of the Lord. Underline that phrase in your Bible. Joel uses it five times. Do you know in the entire Old Testament, that phrase, the day of the Lord, is only used 17 times. Five of those 17 times are contained in this little book of Joel, just three chapters. The day of the Lord speaks about, it's a phrase that is commonly used in reference to the coming of the Lord. It's not a, necessarily a specific day, although it can be. But it also can measure time in terms of a particular season, a particular event. And in general, when Joel here talks about the day of the Lord is coming, he's speaking about future tense, the judgment of God that will be expressed in a parallel way, only in a much more severe way than an invasion of locusts. An invasion of locusts, devastating, it's terrible. But in comparison to what's coming... Because God will bring his judgment upon the earth, you can't even make a comparison. The day of the Lord is coming. And that whole reference refers to the tribulation period. It refers to the return of Christ. It refers to a new heaven, new earth. It refers in general to the coming of the Lord and the judgment that will accompany him because of a rebellious people who have forsaken him and disobeyed him. So Joel not only looks in his own day and says, hey, the locust, that was God's judgment. You guys are rebelling against him. You guys are, are sinning against him. He also looks to a future day. And he says, well, the day of the Lord is coming. And here we are now reading this some, some 2,700 years later. And this still applies. Because where there's sin and disobedience to the Lord, it must be met with his judgment. Otherwise, he would not be a just and holy God. If God winked at our disobedience and did nothing about it, he would not be a just and holy God. And so our sin will result in our punishment, our judgment, if we don't get right with him. 
And so the same message applies, whether it's 750 BC or whether it's 2019 or on. God is saying his judgment is coming. If we don't get right with him, we will suffer the consequences. So this is what he refers to here in Joel chapter 2, verse 1. Also, verse 2 says, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, like the morning clouds spread over the mountains. A people come great and strong, the like of whom has never been, nor will there ever be any such after them, even for many successive generations. And so in the near interpretation, Joel may be referring to, hey, the the Babylonian army is going to be coming here. But in the distant interpretation, he's referring to the battle of Armageddon and the coming armies that will converge in the valley of Jezreel to fight against God and to fight against Israel and to fight against everything that stands for God and everyone who worships Jesus. And so Joel here is describing future tense, future battle, uh, future army that's going to be happening here. And he describes the appearance of this army a little further down, still there in chapter two, look at verses four and five. He says, their appearance is like the appearance of horses and like swift steeds. So they run. Now, I want you to notice the language that he's using here. These are similes. It's like. he's, He's finding it difficult to describe. Why? Because he's living in roughly 750 BC, and he's seeing to our day and even beyond. How does a guy living in 750 BC describe modern warfare in the 21st century? How does he describe the sounds of artillery? How does he describe, you know, the weapons that, that we fight with today? And, and uh, how does he describe, um, you know, all that is used and the things that are, that are a part of, you know, modern day warfare? So he says it's like the appearance of horses and like swift steeds. So they run. He says in verse five, with a noise like, like chariots, not, not really chariots. This is why. Most Bible scholars, when they read this, are like, well, he's probably not talking about the Babylonians because he's using these similes that refer to something beyond what they would typically use here. He says, it's not actually chariots, but it's like chariots. And he says in verse 5, they go over mountaintops. Part of the, the army that he sees has the ability to go over mountaintops, and the, and the noise that they make like the noise of a flaming fire that devours the stubble, like a strong people set in battle array. So he's using his own language to describe something way in the distant future. And when he talks about sounds like chariots and leaping over mountaintops, I mean, he very well could be referring to something like Apache helicopters, or he could be referring to the sonic sounds of F-16 fighter jets that go over the mountains and, and engaging in warfare. And, and so he's seeing these things, and he's trying to describe these things. And he says, listen... There's going to come this time where God's judgment is going to be released and armies are going to come and there's going to be this great battle. And he says there, jump further down, chapter 2, verse 30. He says there, quoting God in verse 30, And I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun, this is verse 31, the sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. Now, this is how we know he's probably talking future tense, because John, when he's inspired to write Revelation, uses identical language to describe the battle of Armageddon, the future tribulation that is coming. You don't need to turn there, but I'll read out of Revelation 6, verses 12 and 13. 
I looked when he opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair. This is what Joel says, the sun becomes dark. John says, and the moon became like blood. That's what Joel says here. The moon turns into blood. And the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind. And so Joel sees into the future here, and he writes about it. He sees into our future. He sees even beyond our day. And he sees a parallel judgment. And this is the way he writes. He says, listen, whether, whether you're living in 750 BC and you sin against God, there's judgment. Whether you live, now I'm going to apply it in modern terms, whether you live in the 21st century and you sin against God, there is judgment. You cannot escape the fact that where there is disobedience against God, it will invite the judgment of God. But, all right, this is important, but there's a remedy to the judgment of God. Whether you live in the 8th century BC or whether you live in the 21st century AD, there is a remedy to God's judgment for our sins. And it is the same as what Joel said to the people of his day as it is to ourselves in our day. And it's found right here in chapter 2, right in the middle between chapters, you know, 1 and 3 is inserted right here. Look at chapter 2 again, verses 12 to 14. I read this at the beginning of our study. I'm going to read it again. Chapter 2, verse 12 to 14. Now just underline these verses, highlight them, star them in your Bibles, but notice this. Verse 12, now therefore says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart, with fasting and with weeping and with mourning. So rend your heart and not your garments. Okay, let me just pause. In that day, as a sign of mourning, they would tear their clothes. And God is saying, don't bother ripping your clothes. Just tear open your heart and get humble and get right with me. Just, you know, be, be remorseful over your sin. Be broken over your sin. You don't need to go around tearing your clothes. He said, rend your heart, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness. Some of your Bibles say abounding in love. And he relents from doing harm. Who knows? He might turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. And so God inserts himself in the story. And I just want to close out chapter two by looking again at verse 32. If you look in in your Bibles, the very last verse of chapter two, verse 32 kind of summarizes it all. When he says there in verse 32, and it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there shall be deliverance as the Lord has said among the remnant whom the Lord calls. See, this is just a wonderful truth inserted in the middle of another awesome truth, which is that yes, God's judgment follows the disobedience of people. But he's made gracious provision that we might not have to experience the judgment of God and the wrath of God if we would turn from our sins and turn to him. Because God is gracious and merciful. He is slow to anger. He is abounding in love. And he relents from doing harm because God's intention is to forgive us and receive us and restore us into right relationship with him. 
this is what God tells us right in the middle of this story. And he adds there, and I, you know, I, I just love the simplicity of all this, where God just basically says, if, if you'll turn to me with all your heart, if you'll humble yourself, if you'll feel sorry and be sorry for your sin, that is what is meant there by fasting and weeping and mourning, turn to me. He says, then I will relent from bringing, bringing judgment upon you. Why? Because verse 13, God is gracious and merciful and slow to anger and of great kindness, abounding in love. And then he adds there in verse 32 what we read, and if you call on the name of the Lord, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That verse Paul quotes in the New Testament, which is how we know that this message is not intended only for for Joel's people of his day. This is also intended for us because Paul picks up on that verse there in Joel 2 verse 32, and he quotes it in Romans chapter 10 when he says this, That if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him, raised Jesus from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. And it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. And then Paul adds, for anyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And he quotes from Joel 2.32. Amen. Now, just to make sure that everybody understands the terminology, if you've been a Christian long enough, you know how to speak Christianese, but not everybody knows Christianese. I mean, it's here in the Bible, but for those of you who aren't certain about, well, what does it mean to be saved? You might ask, saved from what? Everybody who calls the name of the Lord shall be saved. Saved from what? Saved from the judgment of God because of our sin. Saved from the consequences that we deserve because of our disobedience against God. Listen, folks, here are the plain facts. God is righteous and holy and perfect. And we are none of those things. We are sinful, we are proud, and we are very imperfect people. We all fall short of that perfect standard of God. Now, I, I know the common the common phrase that is used in our day, we probably all use this at some point, that phrase about how, well, nobody's perfect. And so we kind of already know that about ourselves, but at the same time, you know why people use that phrase? Because it's a way of justifying one's own bad behavior by comparing oneself to the bad behavior of everybody else. Say, well, everybody, you know, nobody's perfect, right? I mean, I'm just like everybody else. Everybody's just like me and nobody's perfect. And so in some sense, we think we're off the hook because after all, nobody's perfect and I'm a part of that support group. So we're all in the same group. Nobody's perfect. The problem is other people are not the standard. God is not measuring you against the behavior of other people or the heart of other people. It's not, it's not like God looks at you and goes, you know what? You got a terrible boss. Your boss is wicked, evil. You already know that. And so, and God's just like, compared to that, that guy or that lady, you're good to go. God, God, listen to me on this. God does not grade on the curve. God does not look at your life and say, well, compared to so-and-so, you're pretty good. So I'll take you to heaven. That's not the way God operates. God evaluates every single person 
on the basis of his or her own goodness. Now wait, because some of you are like, that's heresy. <laughs> Listen to the rest. The problem is, none of us is good. So when God looks at us, what does he see? He sees the same sinful nature in every single person. Because no one is good enough. He is the perfect standard against which all of us will be measured. And none of us measure up. Now, I know some of your traditions, perhaps, maybe if you've come out of different traditions, religious traditions, you may have been taught that if you're just a good person, if you do a lot of good things, if you're, you know, really careful to, you know, be nice and do good things and, and you know, put in some good works, that you'll be good to go. That as long as your good works outweigh your bad works, you're going to be okay and you're on your way to heaven. That is just simply not true. None of us can work our way to heaven. I mean, who are we kidding? Do you think in a day, just take one common day in your life, do you think in a day you've done more good things than bad things? If you think that, you're not being honest with yourself. <laughs> just think about your different thoughts, think about different things you say, think about the way you act. We are all fallen people. And the perfect standard is God. And we don't measure up. And God, knowing this, said, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to make gracious provision for you to be able to have your sins forgiven. I'll even take you to heaven as your ultimate eternal reward if you will just turn from your sin and turn towards me. And here's what God does. Because he is, as Joel writes there and other places in the Bible, because he is gracious, because he is slow to anger, because he is abounding in love, he demonstrates his love by offering his son Jesus on a cross for our sins. No greater love is a man than this that he laid down his life for his sins. In Romans, it tells us God demonstrated his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. God is motivated by love because God is love and God's purpose is to redeem you and me from our sins and to bring us into right relationship with him. And we can't get there on our own. We don't have the ability to do that because we're all fallen people. We're all sinful at the core. And knowing this, God offers his only son for us on a cross. And then he says this, I will put my judgment intended for you, the consequences that you and I deserve because of our sin, I'm going to put all that on my son Jesus so that if you would just simply believe by faith that he died in your place as a perfect sacrifice, your sins will be forgiven. And you'll have an eternal reward in heaven when you die. All because by faith, you're going to accept God's gracious provision that Jesus died on a cross. He took the punishment intended for me. He took the consequences I deserve. All of it was placed on him. The Bible says by his stripes, by his crucifixion, we're healed, we're made whole. That if we put our faith and trust in him, it's what Paul said. If we confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we shall be saved. For it is with our hearts that we believe and are justified. It is with our mouths that we confess and are saved. Therefore, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Are you saved? If you don't know whether or not you're saved, you can leave here today knowing for sure that you are by turning to him 
by surrendering your life to Jesus. You've been listening to Cornerstone Connection with Pastor Gary Hamrick. Pastor Gary has been teaching through the last several books of the Old Testament, also known as the Minor Prophets. These short books are powerful and reveal so much about your Creator and His love for the world. If you have any questions or would like to share a prayer request with us, please contact us. You can reach us by calling 703-771-1500. Again, that number is 703-771-1500. You can also listen to more teachings in this series by visiting our website, cornerstoneconnection.cc, or just download our mobile app. That way you'll have biblical messages available to listen to whenever you want, wherever you are. Pastor Gary also has a companion resource available for this Minor Prophets series. You'll find it under the Teachings tab at cornerstoneconnection.cc. We'd love to meet you, too. You're invited to join us this weekend at Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg. We're meeting in person as well as online, and you can find out more on our website. Again, that's cornerstoneconnection.cc. That's all we have time for today. Thanks for tuning in to Study the Minor Prophets. And we hope you'll join us again right here on Cornerstone Connection. They say you're a wandering soul That you've got no place to go But still you know